and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert, Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Joshua A. Douglas, Ashland Inc. Spears, Distinguished Research Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. We will discuss his essay, Undue Deference to States in 2020 Election Litigation. So welcome back to the show, Josh. Thank you for having me. It's always good to chat. Yeah, I love having you on. And this essay literally could not possibly be more timely. The 2020 election is literally right around the corner. What's the risk of litigation? You know, what might happen? Yeah, I mean, it's not even uh, around the corner. It's happening right now because people are voting in virtually every state uh, and they've been voting for weeks in some states. The, the question of post-election litigation is a common one, and I think it's possible, but, but hopefully not likely. And here's why. To have a, an election dispute, you know, a Bush v. Gore 2.0, you need a perfect storm of a super close election in a key state that dictates the winner of the Electoral College. So you need, you know, the result to be close enough for it to come down to Pennsylvania or come down to North Carolina or, you know, maybe even a combination of those states. And there be enough ballots to make a difference in who wins. This is what we refer to as the margin of litigation. Right? What's the margin of litigation? That is, what's the difference between the candidates that can make a difference in the outcome? And you know, recall in 2000 in Florida, the difference in that case was 537 votes out of millions cast. So, you know, the perfect storm could certainly occur. Heck, this is 2020, but uh, it's not an inevitable. Uh, that the courts are going to have to become involved post-November 3rd. Well, so as listeners may be aware, there's been a lot of litigation happening already in a lot of different places. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the kinds of questions that are being litigated and the standard that the court is using or courts in general are using to figure out how to evaluate the kinds of questions that people are posing. Yeah, so we've had more election litigation this year than ever before. And I think the reason for that is a combination of election law has just become such a key part of really campaign strategy. And also the pandemic has thrown a wrench into the way that lots of places run their elections normally. And so they've had to make changes. And some states have been reluctant to make changes. And so there have been lawsuits to protect the right to vote. The basic argument being, look, if you don't expand access, people are not going to be able to exercise the fundamental right to vote because of the pandemic, because people don't want to go in person and wait in long lines. So the litigation we've seen has been about who can vote via absentee ballot in terms of eligibility. There are still five states where concerns about COVID-19 are not a valid excuse to vote absentee. Those states are Indiana, Tennessee, Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Um, so you need a traditional kind of excuse to vote absentee in those states. At least in the other states, they either already allowed anyone to vote absentee or they expanded their rules for this year. We've had a lot of litigation about dropping off your ballot. You know, people are concerned about the reliability of the Postal Service. And so want to drop off a absentee ballot. But states like Ohio and Texas have limited the number of drop box locations. You've had uh, a lot of lawsuits, including a few cases that have just gone up to the U.S. Supreme Court this week, 
on the deadline to return an absentee ballot. So some states require those ballots to be in by election day, November 3rd. Some states allow them to come in later so long as they're postmarked by November 3rd. And there's been a major fight about who gets to make that decision uh, at the court with respect to some states, uh, some state courts extending the ballot deadline because the legislatures have refused to act in that instance. And uh, the typically Republicans have been the ones that have appealed that asking for the court to reverse the extensions. Uh, And then you get all sorts of other issues like uh, in Michigan, there was a case about uh, paying people to drive others to the polls, uh, kind of paid transportation to the polls. Um, You get issues about who can sue in Indiana to extend the polling hours if there's a problem on November 3rd. And the state is restricted who's actually even allowed to bring a lawsuit only to the election officials. So a whole suite of different issues that have reached the courts. Well, so when those issues do reach the court, what kind of standards are the courts supposed to use in deciding them? In other words, these are mostly state law issues, as I understand it. If you're bringing federal litigation, how are state uh, courts supposed to figure out whether this they should defer to the state decisions. And is the framework they use consistent with one they would use in other contexts? Yeah. So, you know, the first thing to note is that there is not actually an affirmative right to vote protected in the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution does not grant the right to vote. And the court reminded us of that in Bush v. Gore. Uh, The right to vote is listed in the U.S. Constitution, and there are four amendments that say the state uh, that states cannot deny the right to vote based on certain characteristics, race, sex, inability to pay a poll tax, and age over 18. So that's a prohibition on a discriminate, discriminatory law with respect to who can vote, but there's no affirmative grant. Instead, the Supreme Court has located protection for the right to vote under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Uh, this comes out of a handful of cases from the 1960s, including the one-person, one-vote cases, um, Reynolds versus Sims, a redistricting case, as well as uh, cases about a poll tax, Harper versus um, uh, Virginia, and Kramer versus Union School Board, which was uh, out of New York, about eligibility to vote in a school board election. And in those cases, the court essentially said the right to vote is a fundamental right, and we should apply strict scrutiny review to any infringements on that right. But there's been a couple other cases since then, and two cases in particular, one called Anderson and the other called Burdick, which formulate a more nuanced test for the right to vote. Under this standard, the court has said, if a law imposes a severe burden on the right to vote, then you still apply strict scrutiny review. But if a law burdens voters, but it's not a severe burden, then you apply a lower level balancing test akin to intermediate scrutiny where you look at the burdens that the law does impose and you balance them against the interests that the state asserts. But importantly, in that Anderson case, the court said that the state still has to provide its precise interests for a law and that the state has to demonstrate that the law is necessary to achieve those interests. So even though it's not strict scrutiny, the highest form, it still requires the state to demonstrate why it wants to burden the right to vote or why it needs to in that particular way. Now, the court's never told us what it means to be a severe burden as, a, as compared to a lower level burden that gets the balancing test. But 
that this Anderson verdict test was widely understood as at least requiring states to provide some justification for its law. What the essay that I wrote about the 2020 litigation tries to demonstrate is that both the U.S. Supreme Court and the federal appellate courts have really failed to put states to the test on that interest prong. Again, the Anderson test says that the states have to provide the precise interests for the law burdening the right to vote. But now the courts seem to say, as long as the state says we want to run our elections in this manner, uh, or we're concerned about election administration or election integrity, then the state's got a free pass. And they're not being put to the test to demonstrate any precise interest or any necessity for having the law. Um, So that's one set of cases all coming through the federal court system that really defers to the state legislature or otherwise state election officials without seeking good justifications. There's actually a whole new set of cases that are reaching the U.S. Supreme Court now as well. This was a subject of the two cases um, from this past week, uh, one out of, well, actually three cases, one out of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. Um, And in the Pennsylvania case, I think it's most poignant because that came from the state Supreme Court. And that was a ruling by the state Supreme Court about the state constitution's protection for the right to vote, which goes beyond federal constitutional protection. And yet the Supreme Court at least indicated that, you know, we should defer to the state legislature in that setting as well, that basically we shouldn't let the state Supreme Court issue a ruling about voting, that it's purely up to the state legislature. So you see deference through two different paths, um, one through the federal court system, just based on this Anderson verdict test and not applying it, in my view, vigorously at all. Uh, and then also this other path through the state court system where the U.S. Supreme Court, it hasn't done it yet, but at least several justices have indicated that they're willing to essentially overturn state Supreme Court's decisions about state constitutions because the authority should rest with the state legislature. Well, so I wonder if you could give a couple of examples of what federal courts have looked to in relation to the sort of justifications that states have given for certain kinds of election uh, administration decisions that might impose a burden on the right to vote, and maybe reflect a little bit on how you might think those questions would have come out differently if the sort of more general standard uh, that the courts tend to apply in other strict scrutiny type circumstances had been applied instead. Yeah, you know, there's actually not much to say about the kinds of state justifications that the federal appellate courts in particular have credited because the states haven't really said much. And yet the federal courts are saying, well, we need to defer to the, defer to the state. So, you know, you get cases where the states say, basically, this is how we want to run our elections, or, you know, this this is how we've decided to do things. Or maybe maybe they say think something like, we need an orderly administration of our election, or we're trying to ensure there's not uh, fraud or, or some other kind of election integrity concern. Uh, but what we're seeing is the, the courts are just saying, we defer to the legislature, or, or, you know, we shouldn't second guess the judgment of the lawmaking body. Um, in a few cases, you even have some of the uh, judges, including, I think it was Justice Kavanaugh in a Wisconsin case, in, in a, an opinion he wrote in a Wisconsin case this week, in which he said, uh, we shouldn't question the state legislatures because it's the democratically elected body and 
So if we're concerned, if people are concerned about the decisions they make, well, then the democratic process should take care of it. We can vote them out, which is kind of absurd if you think about it, because state legislatures, they're politicians who are running for re-election. They have every incentive to change the rules to help them stay in power. And so if there's any area in which we think we shouldn't defer to the democratically elected body, it's in an, in an area that where they can be self so self-interested in terms of helping themselves win re-election. Uh, and let's talk about a specific case, because I think this really demonstrates why and how the courts are just deferring to the states blindly. Missouri had, typically has excuse required absentee balloting. So, you know, the sort of typical things, you're sick, or you're out of the uh, out of the county on election day to vote via absentee ballot. But this year they did expand it to allow those with concerns about COVID to vote via absentee ballot as well. Although they called it something different. They called it mail-in balloting for people with COVID concerns. And if you're an absentee ballot, that is you have a regular excuse like you would in any normal year, then you can deliver your ballot either via the mail or in person. But if you are requesting to vote by mail only based on COVID-19 concerns, you're a mail-in voter, then you can only return your ballot via the mail, and it's due uh, on Election Day, on November 3rd. Um, And so this was challenged, basically saying, you know, why can't these voters who are voting by mail return their ballot in person, just like absentee voters who have another kind of excuse? And the lower court agreed and said, basically, the state has no good reason to accept in-person ballots from one set of voters, but not another set of voters. And the Eighth Circuit reversed on a 2-1 decision. And the Eighth Circuit basically said the state has a good enough reason or just the state wants to accept in-person absentee ballots from these people, but not people who are voting via mail because of COVID-19 concerns. And we're going to let the state do it as it wants. Uh, and I think that that case just demonstrates, I mean, the state, I can't think of a possible reason why the state would be justified in saying we're only going to allow in-person delivery from some voters, but not others. Um, but yet the court upheld it. So what kind of standard do you think the the appellate courts in particular, I guess the the district courts as well, ought to be applying in these circumstances. I mean, are there certain kinds of state decisions that should receive more deference and certain kinds of decisions that should re- receive less, perhaps? How should they go about evaluating whether a particular state decision, one that's legitimate or one that is constitutionally objectionable? Well, I mean, I support a recognition of a fundamental right to vote within the U.S. Constitution and the application of strict scrutiny review. Um, But at a minimum, even if we're not going to go strict scrutiny, I think that we should take that Anderson test of having the states demonstrate a precise interest for its law and the necessity of burdening voters' rights at face value and actually at least require, at a minimum, require states to do that. You know, but I do think strict scrutiny is appropriate because if the right to vote is a fundamental right, which I believe it is, and I think it's the foundation of our democracy, then we should be as protective of voters as possible. And, you know, the states might complain and say, well, that makes our administration of elections too difficult. My answer is too bad. You know, we should be more protective of the ability of everybody to participate in our democracy. If if democracy is is legitimate based on the consent of the governed, which is an ideal that comes from the Declaration of Independence, then that consent should include all of us. And it should include everyone without barriers. 
It should include, include everyone uh, to making it easy as possible to vote. And we know that states, some states do a great job. Some states do a very good job about making it easy to vote, having easy access to the ballot. And guess what? Those states have high turnout. So, you know, for a state that says, well, it's too difficult, look to your sister states to see that other states are doing it, uh, you know, perfectly fine. And, you know, yes, it maybe costs more money. Maybe it costs more time. Maybe it requires something to be phased in. I mean, all these things are legitimate things. Also, maybe we do need to worry about integrity concerns. So we have good uh, safeguards. Of course, the states that do this well, like Oregon or Colorado, have perfectly good safeguards. We don't have major fraud in those elections either. So I do think your traditional strict scrutiny test where the states have to demonstrate a compelling interest and that the law is narrowly tailored to achieve that interest is most protective of the right to vote. So I'd like to see the courts move in that direction. But if even if they're unwilling to do so under this you know, lower level intermediate scrutiny Anderson verdict test, I mean, that seems to be almost overruled uh, silently in this new crop of cases where the courts aren't even trying to provide any uh, justification from the states or requiring justification from the states. And interestingly, some of these judges are not talking about the right to vote at all. In the Wisconsin case, uh, this is the case that went to the Supreme Court about the extension of the absentee balloting deadline. And this was a 5-3 decision um, with uh, Justice Kagan writing a vigorous dissent and Justice Kavanaugh writing a concurrence. Um, I just did a, a, a search for the phrase right to vote, and it was appeared 11 times. Um, eight of those were in Justice Kagan's dissent, and three were in Justice Kavanaugh's opinion, and two of those three were uh, basically to be dismissive of Kagan's argument. So we see a real split of to whether there's even any protection for the right to vote anymore. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of the concept of what it means to burden the right to vote, because that was a question that occurred to me when I was reading your paper. And I, and I, I guess I kind of, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about sort of like a baseline or how we ought to conceptualize what the kind of the minimal standard for the, you know, kind of ease or degree or range of different options or capacities for voting that states might be expected to offer are. Um, you know, and how, how we had to think about that in terms of sort of when a burden exists in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a hard question because uh, if the threshold for strict scrutiny under the current test is severe burden, we don't really know what it means to be a severe burden. But, but you're asking even a more fundamental and probably more important question, which is what is a burden at all? And I guess I would define a burden as any barrier to the ballot box, anything that makes it a little bit harder for people to participate. So, you know, you might say, well, does that mean that having to travel to a particular precinct is a burden? Yeah, but I think a state could justify that pretty easily as long as the polling place is not too far away, if there's enough options, et cetera. But what about the polls closing at you know, in Kentucky, we have one of the earliest poll closing times for in-person voting of 6 p.m. You know, so the someone that shows up at 6.01, aren't they burdened by not being able to cast their ballot? Yeah, I think they are, but it's a minimal burden. And again, the state would have a really good justification for why we need to end the election when we do. You know, we always we need to have some point in which we say, OK, now is the deadline and you have to comply. 
Now, that same burden, though, that same closing hour, however, uh, could be a burden on someone who can't vote by mail because they don't qualify with a valid excuse and works a 12-hour shift uh, that during the entire time when the polls are open. And this is sometimes referred to as the nurses problem in Louisville because there's been a bunch of nurses uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, that have explained that under normal Kentucky law, you can't vote absentee if you're going to be in the county on election day. And so a nurse who works across town uh, in a place like Louisville technically doesn't doesn't, doesn't comply with the law or isn't qualified to vote via absentee uh, if they're working an entire shift that day. Uh, So the burden on that person is a lot higher than the burden on sort of your regular person with the poll closing hour. Uh, So I think it is context and voter specific, but I would say anything that makes it harder for someone to cast a ballot could be a valid burden. But we also need to beef up the scrutiny of the state's justifications, but also recognize that states are going to have a sufficient sufficient justification for some election laws because we do need to have various rules in place. Yeah. I mean, if I may, it sounds like you're suggesting that courts ought to be shifting the burden, as it were, to the states to justify why they're administering elections in the way that they are, rather than presuming that the 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 way the states are choosing to administer is constitutionally acceptable. Absolutely. And, and that's what Anderson Burdick says, if you just read the test that the court set out in those two cases. Um, and yet it's morphed. It's sort of been a creep towards simply allowing the state to get by with a generic justification uh, and basically blaming plaintiffs for not explaining why the state's reasons aren't good enough. So I think that's absolutely right that, you know, part of heightened scrutiny is uh, puts the burden on the government to justify its laws. And I think, you know, we can still do that and not tie the hands of states too much to run elections in a way that's fair and equitable. You said one thing earlier that I thought was really interesting, and I was wondering if you could reflect on it a little bit more, because I don't really understand it, which is that you suggested that some federal courts have been saying that they need to defer to the state legislature, even when there's a disagreement between the state legislature and the state Supreme Court in certain circumstances. And I just found that quite surprising because it seems to me unusual. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what is happening and why it might matter. Yeah, this is surprising and unusual. I agree. Um, It's referred to as the independent state legislature doctrine. And so, you know, anytime the U.S. Supreme Court hears a case, of course, there needs to be a federal hook. So in these cases that I'm describing from the federal appeals courts, obviously, the federal hook is an equal protection clause claim about the right to vote. But these cases from the state Supreme Courts that are about state laws and state constitutions, they need a federal hook as well to get get to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the federal hook is the U.S. Constitution, particularly Article 1, Section 4, and Article 2, Section 1. Those two clauses give authority to the state legislatures to regulate elections. So Article 1, Section 4 is about congressional elections. It says that the times, places, and manner of regulating an election shall be uh, determined by the state legislature. And Article 2, Section 1 says that state legislatures shall determine the manner of determining uh, presidential electors. So the argument is that if the state Supreme Court 
interprets a state law that's contrary to what the state legislature wants, that's taking power away from the state legislature. Uh, this was an issue in Bush v. Gore in 2000 that the um, that the Republicans and, and the Bush side brought because that was a case that came from the Florida Supreme Court. And they argued to the U.S. Supreme Court that the Florida Supreme Court had gone so far astray that it took the power away from the legislature in violation of Article 2. Um, Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote a concurrence in that case that agreed with this theory. And it was agreed to by Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia. So there were three votes then for this idea that the U.S. Supreme Court can review decisions by state Supreme Courts on election law um, to see if they go too far astray. And it's a little absurd, though, in my own view, because essentially the U.S. Supreme Court is saying, Florida Supreme Court, you are not acting like a court to interpret laws. You are basically acting like a legislature, and only the legislature can pass laws. But I think we're seeing right now this doctrine being put even more extreme by Justice Gorsuch and uh, Justice Alito in particular. And Justice Kavanaugh in a footnote suggested he agrees with it as well. And Justice Thomas has signed on. So there's, I think, four votes on the current Supreme Court for this independent state legislature doctrine, which basically says that it's the role of the U.S. Supreme Court to protect state legislatures from contrary rulings by their state Supreme Courts. Now, again, I think this is absurd because state constitutions create the state legislature, they create the state judiciary. And so one would think that the state legislature has to act consistent with the state constitution. But apparently, according to these four justices, that's not the case when talking about election law, because the U.S. Constitution says the state legislature shall determine the manner of running elections. And so according to them, it's the province of the U.S. Supreme Court to reverse a state Supreme Court decision because that state Supreme Court decision would go contrary to the legislature's authority. Now, I said we had four votes for this theory. Um, it's possible we have five if Justice Barrett goes along. We just don't know. And it's even possible there could be a sixth vote because there was a case a few years ago out of Arizona about the um, independent redistricting commission there. And so the voters in Arizona adopted a um, referendum to create an independent redistricting commission and take the power to draw lines away from the legislature. And the Arizona Republicans sued, went to the Supreme Court, and it was a 5-4 ruling upholding the, uh, the independent redistricting commission. But the dissent argued that you can't take power away from the state legislature to draw lines under the Constitution, under that Article 1, Section 4 that says legislature shall have the manner of running elections. And Chief Justice Roberts wrote the dissent in that case. So he has not joined these opinions this week on this independent state legislature doctrine. But if he's faithful to his dissent from a couple of years ago, that could be a vote as well. I think it's really scary because it gives even more power to the U.S. Supreme Court to be restrictive on the right to vote in its own views and not give any deference even to the state Supreme Court about what state law means. Well, with any luck, this isn't going to be a catastrophic problem this year, but I wonder if you have thoughts about what we could potentially do to head off these kinds of issues going forward. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing to note, I think your your comment is right, that hopefully we, it won't be an issue this year, but I think it will be an issue in future years because this these precedents that the, the these decisions set are really concerning for any protection of the right to vote because we've really 
devalued the, the right to vote under the Equal Protection Clause if we're just going to defer to the states and reject challenges uh, from the, on the federal side. And if the U.S. Supreme Court steps in to undo state Supreme Court decisions, then we've gutted the protection that state constitutions allow. And state constitutions, almost all of them, have explicit language conferring the right to vote uh, to the state citizens. And so we've had some very favorable rulings from state Supreme Courts. And if the U.S. Supreme Court steps in, there's no state constitutional right to vote protection either. So, you know, basically, they're closing off all avenues of protecting the right to vote. And and these cases, you know, go further. There's a lot of discussion, by the way, about kind of last minute election challenges. And there's a, a case called Purcell, which says courts shouldn't change the rules too close to an election. But I think these cases invoke partially that principle, but maybe more concerningly, this idea of undue deference to states and close off the ability to protect the right to vote. So what are the solutions moving forward? I mean, unfortunately, there's three and none of them are great. Uh, one is to get the courts to change their views and change their jurisprudence. But I'm not very optimistic that that is going to happen anytime soon. And, you know, to get them to reinvigorate this precise interest requirement from Anderson. I just, I'm not optimistic that that's possible. The second would be federal legislation that requires various pro-voter policies. Um, Because the U.S. Constitution does say that even though state legislatures have the authority to regulate elections, congressional elections, that is, Congress may alter or amend those regulations. So Congress has uh, constitutional authority through the Elections Clause, also, also through various constitutional amendments to enact legislation. So I think that's a possibility. Um, And then the third thing would be a right to vote amendment, um, where we actually change the U.S. Constitution to impose a constitutional right to vote. If these justices are going to be textualists, let's put it in the Constitution in the text to make them be more protective. Well, in closing, Josh, what do you think an amendment like that would look like? And do you think that there's a likelihood of something like that being adopted in the future? Well, so Senators Durbin and Warren have already introduced language for a right to vote amendment, Um, although I'm not even sure that the language that they've introduced is strong enough. But, you know, what they've said basically is that the right to vote is a fundamental right and that courts have to apply strict scrutiny review. And I think that's a really good start. I might beef it up to make it even more explicit that the courts can't simply defer to state election laws and that the states have to provide and demonstrate a a compelling interest. The language that they propose says that the states have to show a law is in furtherance of a compelling interest. Uh, I'm a little nervous about that in furtherance of language because I could see a conservative court saying, you know, that language doesn't mean we have to apply strict scrutiny in every situation. Um, So, so I think a a state, excuse me, a, a federal constitutional amendment needs to be clear that the right to vote is a affirmative uh, fundamental right, and that courts have to apply heightened scrutiny to any laws that burden the right to vote. Well, thanks so much, Josh, for coming on the show once again, talking about this super timely and important issue. And uh, I look forward to listening to your commentary uh, on Election Day. Thank you so much. And for anyone listening uh, who has read the essay up on SSRN, I'd love to any comments. Uh, you might have as I continue to work on this. So please feel free to reach out.
vote for a Democrat like I did four years ago. I think I know what Democrats will do. Republicans, I don't know. Republicans been out so doggone long, it must nearly drive them bats. Cause nobody notices them until they investigate Democrats. Many years ago we had a president, a Republican who got the blame for deflating our dollars and wearing high collars. Now what in the heck was his name? Oh, those were Republican diet days when chicken was all they ate. There may have been chickens in lots of pots, but I lost a whole lot of weight. Going to vote for a Democrat Cause they've done the best they could Republican savior in awful shape I never had it so good Now there's one Republican candidate That everyone's looking at The way that he smiles and acts and talks He should be a Democrat Now I liked our last Democrat president He did what he said he would do He looked good in a sports shirt Wrote letters like expert And played the piano good too But we can all vote for the guy we like You may not agree with me Just think what it means to be living here Yeah, we're all free to disagree 